the vast majority of offensive cyber operations that have occurred in this conflict has been targeting of information, either espionage or destruction of information. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. We've been planning an episode on cyber attacks for a while now. But we got really fired up about it when we saw that the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Karim Khan, had wrote about it, suggesting that he is, in fact, planning to bring a case. And it all became even more pressing when the ICC itself was the target of a cyber attack in mid-September, which we'll talk more about later. But first, back to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, looking at cyber attacks, potentially those in Ukraine, even though the word Ukraine is not always mentioned in all of these contexts, at an event on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly meeting, which was in New York earlier in September, we're now recording at the end of September, Khan said this. So the plan next year is to put forward policy papers on cyber crimes and the environment uh, and slavery crimes. So that's our agenda pretty much mapped out for the year. Yeah, exactly. Now we know what we need to focus on. But we also listened to that side event, which was actually held by Foreign Policy magazine. And he said some other interesting stuff, which shows exactly what he wants to consult on. Command responsibility is one of the issues. I mean, how do you trace back sort of within a command structure to show that one individual, maybe a senior one, can be held responsible? And he also said more generally that the current law around cyber attacks isn't really clear. One of the concerns is the lack of clarity. We need to not um, legislate, but clearly identify the parameters of the existing jurisdiction and be clear to the public, to states, to non-state actors, and the investigators and prosecutors and analysts in the office that uh, cyber attacks may fall within the jurisdiction of the existing law. And so if we don't know what our jurisdiction is, we're not going to look for it properly. Mm -hmm. It's necessary to put it in clear terms. So that's why this consultation, the policy papers, it's a way of consulting with the international legal community and bring some clarity. On our side, we thought we'd get a head start on the parameters here with Lindsay Friedman. She is the Director of Technology, Law and Policy at Berkeley's Human Rights Centre. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So Lindsay and the Human Rights Centre have actually submitted two briefs, so far as we understand. These are the Article 15 submissions to the Office of the Prosecutor, things that we've covered in other podcasts in the past. But in these, they try to outline an overview of the ways in which Russia has actually used cyber means and methods of warfare to attack civilian critical infrastructure in Ukraine. And of course, they look at who might be responsible. And let's start with some specific incidents, Lindsay. Can you generally summarize what happened? You speak, I think, of five different cyber attacks. What did they affect and who may have been responsible, according to your research? Sure. So one thing is we started this project actually in the fall of 2021, so before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and we were sort of exploring the possibilities within the Rome Statute framework of whether any uh, cyber operation could be charged as war crimes. 
And Ukraine seemed like a very promising test case for a few reasons, but one of which was there was an ongoing armed conflict. So we marked the start of this armed conflict, as many do, as Ukraine does in 2014, and see that as ongoing as long as Crimea has been occupied. And there's also been the ongoing fighting in the Donbass region. And in Ukraine, the winter of 2015 and the winter of 2016, Russia, and I'm just going to say that as a shorthand, even though we haven't proved it in court, but it's quite strongly attributed, and I can talk more about that. But Russia attacked Ukraine's power grid. First, the 2015 attack was in the western region, the Ivano-Frankovich region, and then the 2016 was in Kiev. So the first one cut out the power for several hours for quarter of a million people in that area. The Kiev one, while shorter lived because they were able to get the system back on manually quite quickly, affected more than 3 million people. And again, if you've been to Kiev in winter, I have not, but I have seen the temperatures there and it's very, very cold. So these attacks seem like a promising test case. So from what I understand, you were looking at attacks even from before the full-scale invasion, and um, maybe you'll also help to detail some of the ones afterwards. But why did you think that these ones were promising for something that the prosecutor could address? Well, since there was already an ongoing armed conflict, it allowed us to avoid the stickier and more controversial issue of whether a cyber attack alone could constitute an armed conflict. So we already had the existence of an armed conflict established, and there is much more consensus among scholars in states that if you have an armed conflict, the rules of international humanitarian law apply to the cyber domain like it would with any means and method of warfare. And we also had harm that looked much more similar to the harms we're familiar with. You know, you could easily make the analogy of if a bomb went off and cut off the power grid and caused this kind of harm, you wouldn't even be questioning it in the same way. And then also because of the attribution and having these attacks that happened several years ago is helpful because as time goes by, intelligence agencies may be less concerned about revealing means and methods since the means and methods change over time and can provide more data on the attribution of something that happened longer ago. So 2015, 2016, there's a tremendous amount of evidence to establish who's culpable. In your second submission, you've detailed another, I think, five cyber attacks. Can you talk a bit about things that were targeted there and how you've managed to attribute that and if you've managed to attribute that? Yes. So of the five attacks, we include the two from the first one and sort of make the second one all-encompassing because we also, at that point in time, had done a lot more thinking on the legal issues as well as more evidence collection. And the five attacks altogether, we focused on ones that were attacks on critical infrastructure where there was loss of functionality or some kind of physical effect and on ones that were attributable to a very specific military unit within the GRU, which is Russia's military intelligence. So this is military unit 74455. Cybersecurity researchers from all around the world have tracked this threat group, and so it's known by many different names. The most common one is sandworm. So 
In our brief, we refer to it as Sandworm or Military Unit 74455. So the three additional attacks we added, one more was from before the full-scale invasion, which was the NotPetya attack in 2017, which to date is still the most harmful cyber attack that's ever occurred. It caused over $10 billion in damage, affected over 60 countries. There were 60 healthcare facilities in the U.S., for example, that had interruptions in their healthcare services and uh, medical provision. So that was a significant one. We originally hadn't included it more for practical reasons of U.S.-ICC relationships and just the complexity of that attack, where with a test case and exploring something new and very technical, keeping it as simple as possible seemed like a good approach. But once Russia invaded Ukraine, that calculus changed and it made more sense to include NotPetya, especially given the U.S jumping on board with this specific investigation. The other two attacks that happened since February 2022 are the attack on the KS satellite network. So this was an attack, and it's really part of a wider cluster of attacks that started before Russia invaded, that started mid-January. But sort of the main attack we look at is on the day of the invasion, as Russian troops are invading, they take out the satellite network. And while it does seem that the primary target was Ukrainian military communications, which obviously would be a legitimate military target, although not legitimate if this is characterized as a crime of aggression, sort of a separate issue, but if it is a war crime, But the harm went much broader than that. And when we find out the details of the attack, um, this wasn't just a small miscalculation, but an overly broad and knowingly attack that disrupted windmills in Germany, health services in France, disrupted Internet in several other countries, Greece, Poland, Italy, France. So it had very widespread effects beyond the borders of Ukraine. So both that and not Petia, we look at as indiscriminate attacks, whereas the power grid attacks are attacks on civilian objects. And then we have a fifth attack, which happened in April 2022, um, which is a third power grid attack using a new version of the malware in the 2016 attack. There's this big range of attacks we got, but I understand that your second submission to the Office of the Prosecutor was also trying to address some of the tricky legal side. Both Steph and I have covered a lot of different war crimes trials, and we know that charging somebody with war crimes can get very technical because there's all kinds of detail that you need to be able to prove whether something is an attack, whether something is civilian whether somebody knew and all of those different details. Is that what you were trying to enable the prosecutor to understand? I mean, what were the things that you thought were important for the office of the prosecutor to understand about the war crimes part of this uh, set of cyber attacks? I will say within this conflict, there has been a lot more cyber activity than the events we identify in this. It's been very, very active in the cyber domain. So there were lots of considerations of many different cyber operations and whether or not they met the threshold. So these come in the midst of a much larger pattern of this type of activity. But 
one of the elements you have to establish is that an attack occurred because you're establishing that it was an attack on a civilian object that was not a military objective. The threshold of what is an attack in cyberspace is something that is debated and there's a few schools of thought on it. Some people really require some kind of physical damage, but I think a much wider group is more flexible in looking at loss of functionality and recognizing the reliance on technology today that you don't need to have a physical effect, you know, a computer to explode to have harm to civilians. And so something like taking out the power grid is something that I believe clearly sort of meets that threshold. Of course, as Karim Khan said, it's unclear because the law has never been interpreted by judges. So until it's sort of tested in court, we won't know. But we were trying to pick out the incidents that would make for the strongest test case possible. In addition to the threshold of an attack, one of the other legal issues is what constitutes an object and whether electronic data would constitute an object since it's intangible and sort of didn't exist at the time the Geneva Conventions were created. And again, there's some people who take a narrow interpretation that it has to be a physical object because that must be what the drafters intended. We argue that the definition should be looked at broader to, you know, something of value that you can have ownership over. And if you think about it today, how much value you put into your data, if all your data was deleted versus some physical objects being stolen, you'd probably be more (laughs) upset about the data and could have more loss. So that's another thing where it comes to an interpretation of existing law that we wanted to push for. And then the third key legal issue is what constitutes a military objective given dual use technologies. So something like a power grid can very easily be dual use. So you have to inevitably get into a proportionality analysis if the military is using some of the power grid, but some of the interpretations of any sort of use at all by the military suddenly qualifies the entire object, an entire network as a military objective, we believe is overly broad and weighs way too heavily on the side of military necessity over protection of civilians. And we think it should be interpreted with the strongest protection for civilians, which means that the military objective has to be much narrower, that one person from a defense department using that power grid alone can't make the entire power grid fair game. Just in the same way, if a combatant ran into a city and was hiding in a city center, it doesn't make the entire city something that you could bomb in that case. Does it also turn a bit the concept of collateral damage on its head? Because you said these cyber attacks also had knock-on effects from windmills in Germany and and U.S. hospitals. Now, that would seem huge. On the other hand, if you look at how cyber attacks works, if you bomb a, a target that is a military target, it is allowed and there is some leeway for collateral damage in international law. Are you not afraid that that is uh, going to be an argument? The fact that a windmill in Germany falls out is just can also just be considered collateral damage? 
Yeah, I mean, we don't see it as collateral damage in this case. We see it as effects that they knew absolutely were going to occur and that were extremely broad in this case. You know, affecting other countries outside of the armed conflict is extremely outside the scope of what you would think of in sort of traditional you bomb one target in the houses next door might be collateral damage. I I don't really see this as collateral damage. I see this as damage that was intended because they knew this broad damage would happen as soon as they launched the malware. So it is, you do get into maybe proportionality, but I wouldn't characterize it as collateral damage. How do we know what we do know about these attacks? I mean, not only the effects that you've described, but you've got this fairly strong attribution to this particular unit in the GRU, the, the sandworm lot of people. I mean, I mean, is, is this all coming from US intelligence sources? No, definitely not all US intelligence sources, although, you know, a lot of tech companies are based in the US, so you could characterize it that way. But one of the main sources, initial sources of evidence on this or information as uh, lead information are threat intelligence reports, which private cybersecurity companies put out and just general tech companies that have telemetry. So sort of the signals intelligence that any tech company has because the customers are using their product, like Microsoft gets, I'm going to get it wrong, but something like 4 million, 4 billion data points a day back from its users giving information about it. So there's a lot of this telemetry that can be analyzed. So it's private cybersecurity threat intelligence reports, and then government attribution is another thing, as well as information from the victim. So in this case, Ukraine has been open about sharing, especially what's happened with the power grid, because they want other people to learn from what happened as well. So to understand the defense, They shared a good amount of information about it. Obviously, as the war is ongoing with more recent attacks, they are not sharing as much because the first priority is winning the war. (laughs) And so it's understandable that they might not want to reveal as much. But uh, the types of things they look at in this analysis for attribution might be the infrastructure that the attackers use, the type of malware what they call TTPs, which is uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, I think. But um, the behavior of the threat actor, but using shared infrastructure is one. And there can be some overlap between somebody's personal infrastructure and the infrastructure they are using as part of their military work. So some of that helps with attribution. And then, of course, the government attribution has a different layer of human intelligence and other intelligence sources that governments have access to. That sort of the underlying data is classified, but you can sort of know the categories of information upon which it's based. And we looked really at incidents where many countries have done the attribution. And so it's not just the U.S., In the Viastat hack, I think it was 30 countries have now done their own attribution um, and attributed it to the same threat actor. One of just the little things of why this group is known as Sandworm 
is because in the campaign code of earlier malware attacks, um, there was always some sort of reference to the book Dune. And so that's why cybersecurity researchers started referring to it as Sandworm because it's from the book Dune. So like little signatures like that are also ways to know it's an attack is coming from the same same group. I don't know if it's comforting or frightening to know that computer nerds are the same the world over with the Dune references. How about uh, the gravity of these crimes? We talked a little bit about when I suggested it might be collateral damage. You said the damage is much vaster. It's usually hard to see um, because they're not visible. We don't see bombed out cyber structure kind of thing. Can you say something about how you assess the gravity of it? Yes. So gravity probably is the biggest issue or hurdle I would imagine the prosecutor might see in these types of cases or one that scholars have argued is a hurdle, which we recognize the type of harm is different and you don't have the same direct human suffering as a result of it. I would say what is collateral damage is like there's the secondary effects and tertiary effects. So we try and talk about that as well of, you know, if you take out the power grid, there's hospitals on that power grid. And if the hospitals aren't operating and people are sick there, then they're going to be injured if food spoils and people don't have the food and medicine they need. Um, you have these additional effects that come from it. So we really propose looking at harm more holistically as well as psychological effects. But For the gravity threshold, we do heavily rely on ICC precedent and looking in particular at the Almaty case, which is based on cultural heritage property and the destruction of 10 mosques and mausoleums. So you don't have that human harm. They look more at like what destroying cultural property means to the community in that case. And I would argue that when we're talking about the power grids we rely on every day for so many things, it's more grave. Like these cases are more grave than compared to the Almaty cultural heritage property case. We also look in the Darfur context. It's the Abu Garda case where I think only a few people were killed, but they were peacekeepers. And so the court had other cases like the Camorra's case that had more people killed that they felt wasn't grave enough. So you're not just looking at number of people, but it was really the significance of going after peacekeepers, even if it's just a few peacekeepers, because they're there to protect a wider community. Um, so it was really based on the court's interpretations of gravity that we felt you can make the argument for this. But I think To meet that gravity threshold, the prosecutor's office, if they were to take on one of these cases, really would have to walk the judges through, these are the harms that can occur, and these are the secondary effects. I mean, some of the psychological effects after the first power grid attacks, whenever there has been a Russian threat of invasion in Ukraine, everyone takes their money out of the ATM. There's a rush to the ATM because... Um, in those times, ATMs weren't working when the electricity was shut off. And that was an issue. So you see these behavioral changes, as well as sort of the intended psychological effects is also undermining the democracy and undermining the government in Ukraine so that the people sort of lose their trust in it. And that's something we 
uh, say is the goal of the attack because it's very explicitly written in Russian military doctrine that that is their intent or some of the intent with these attacks. Yeah, you just mentioned the documentation from uh, the Russian military side. The kind of goal in the end from the ICC is always to try and find who's responsible and to put the most top person, the most responsible person on, on trial. How can you tell that this was actually policy set at a high level? How do you know that this was Russian policy? So reading Russian documents, which I don't do because I don't speak Russian, but we do have native Russian speakers on the team who have read very, very thoroughly official government documents, as well as individual academic writing of some of the military people in the hierarchy. One of the things that there's some debate about this, people refer to it as the Gerasimov doctrine after a 2017 speech. Uh, General Gerasimov made. Others have said that sort of misinterpreted in the speech and it shouldn't be referred to as the Gerasimov doctrine, but it's a useful shorthand for talking about Russia's sort of approach to cyber. It's just in sometimes how it's framed, it's framed in a defensive position of this is what other people are going to do to us. It was really parsing that out, but there's several different documents in terms of their policy on hybrid warfare, use of information operations, use of cyber operations. And even more recently, one thing we got a hold of is the current head of Sanworm of Military Unit 74455, his college thesis. You know, in his college thesis, he writes very explicitly about things that uh, we can attach to things that actually have happened. Yeah, it's pretty just well articulated and laid out. Also looking at statements, public statements, statements in a lot of different venues as well. So that's been helpful. And then also looking more broadly at practice of all the sort of attacks that have been attributed to Russia. When you have the big picture and the context, that helps you sort of understand the intent. We've also seen recent reports that Russian hackers are targeting war crimes evidence. We had a story from Reuters saying Russian hackers seeks war crimes evidence. And Ukraine's cyber chief said that then there's a report out there. Do you see that as a similar target? You've In your report, you state a lot of civilian infrastructure. Have you seen targeted attacks at war crimes evidence or where war crimes evidence might be stored? Yes. Well, I would say before this, lots of attacks are on information. These are things that we feel fall below the threshold, so aren't included in our submission. But the vast majority of offensive cyber operations that have occurred in this conflict has been targeting of information, either espionage or destruction of information. And there's been really significant use of wipers, which is a specific type of malware designed just to destroy. So destroying data that's very important for operations of the government and different government agencies. And so it's not new, the targeting of information, that's sort of what they do the most and probably a wider apparatus within the Russian government, as well as using cyber proxies. There are some Russian hacking groups that have very, very close ties to the GRU, which are also executing some of these more information 
operation attacks as opposed to sort of the effects based cyber operations. The targeting of the ICC and the OPG, the Prosecutor General of Ukraine, there have been new reports for it. This newest uh, attack on the ICC does seem uniquely severe in the timing, obviously, is one that's a little hard to ignore given the prosecutor's announcement. But I have no details about it, so still don't know. The, the ICC is working on many different investigations with many different governments who would be interested in that and governments with very good cyber capabilities as well. So it wouldn't immediately jump to this being Russia in this case. Like, we just don't know. I doubt it's the first time there has been interest from a government or threat actor in the ICC's evidence. But as cyber is used more and more and as more digital evidence is used, ICC and other prosecutors' offices are going to become more vulnerable to this. The larger the digital evidence is the base of your case, the more that's going to be targeted. So in some ways, hopefully this attack is sort of a blessing in disguise. If there were vulnerabilities in the ICC system, which it seems that there were, because on some of the preliminary reporting, there was some success of exfiltrating information from that, um, that's a vulnerability that now hopefully will be patched and leave the office with a much stronger infrastructure in place. Unfortunately, sometimes in a lot of these institutions, it takes an event like this in order to really force people to act, especially if they're, they have resource constraints. It's not going to be made a priority until it needs to be a priority. So. Yeah, I think aside from our case, this was sort of bound to happen at some point. And I'm hoping it will be a good thing in the long run so that the ICC and the Ukrainian prosecutor general's office can really fortify their cyber defenses. Yeah, we don't know a lot about the cyber attack. I will recap it a little, Cephopedia, a little for our listeners uh, who haven't been following it. What we got in September is on... Tuesday afternoon, the ICC suddenly said that there had been an incident, a cyber attack, and they were looking at it with the help of Dutch authorities. The Netherlands has like a national center for cyber security, and they're looking at it. Of course, we all started digging around for what happened. We don't know a lot. There is somebody who spoke to a source in the Dutch uh, um, local broadcaster, NOS, who said that they said that important documents were taken. We can't get any confirmation of that, but I know the Dutch police is now investigating. So that does point to that maybe, and part of what they're investigating, I think is called digital theft. So that does suggest that maybe they downloaded something or they got possession of something and weren't just looking in. What we learned is that the ICC has shut down all their systems connected to the internet. And so while it's still functioning, it makes it very difficult. Nobody or very few people within the ICC system can send mails. And the lawyers are continuing their cases, but they have to do it that 1990s way. So with post-its, with PDFs, with printing out, uh, sending each other notes in class uh, instead of sending each other messages or, or emails about redactions and things like that. And so it's really slowing cases down. There's one case still ongoing uh, in the Central African Republic and the lawyers there are kind of 
continuing with it in this way because if you're in the court, the intranet does work and they can see files and documents. It's just that everybody who's working outside of the court does not have access to that, including also people who are at a distance. So if you have witnesses who were supposed to testify video, video link, that doesn't work. That's about it. The court will not say anything more. And Kareem Khan, even though he had a whole uh, side event about cyberspace and cybersecurity, did not answer any questions about the attack on the ICC itself. So we can't really say who is behind it. One thing we can say is that the Dutch security services have put in their annual report last year that the ICC is really interesting to Russian hackers because of their two cases looking at Georgia war crimes and also Ukraine war crimes. So it has already been marked as a target. And we had that weird case about a year ago or a year and a half ago with a Russian-Brazilian guy who was supposed to have an internship at the ICC, but he turned out to be a Russian plant and he was intercepted and never actually made it to the ICC. But we knew that at least it seemed that Russia was trying to get access to things happening at the ICC. Lindsay, I really appreciate you saying you think this may be a kind of a wake-up call a bit to the ICC and to the Ukrainian Office of the Prosecutor. And the feel that I have from you is you're very much in the pioneering mode of saying, let's look at this. You've said that there are a number of scholars who are also thinking about this and writing about this. But I'm wondering, does the expertise actually exist there, particularly within something like the ICC, to begin to comprehend all of this and to look into all of this? I mean, wh- where is the expertise coming from? Is it there in the court already on this on this subject, on cyber attacks? Yeah, well, there's a few more things I could say about the current attack. But one thing is, in our research and work, we found the Dutch are very expert at this. They are very, very sophisticated in their cyber capabilities. Like of all governments, the Dutch are one that stood out and the Dutch have been paying attention to this specific threat actor and other GRE threat actors for a really long time. So I think the court is in very good hands with the Dutch. The one thing I just wanted to add is, you know, they will eventually have information that they can collect and preserve about this attack and who the perpetrators are. And the other charge where the Office of the Prosecutor has been successful, actually, maybe more so than war crimes, is offenses against the administration of justice. So it also, whoever's responsible for this, might have just sort of handed a case and evidence for another type of charge that the ICC could bring, which is just interesting to think about. In terms of the ICC internally, there's some resources, but they need much more. The prosecutor Khan made this point in his talk that one of the things is if you're at the UN or the ICC, they often can't offer the salaries that are competitive with the private sector. This is an issue for governments too, including the US government is sort of competition for skills. But I think a huge resource for the ICC is in its cooperation and collaboration with external actors. And they have in the past Uh, The prosecutor's office did have a technology advisory board under prosecutor Ben Suda. And this prosecutor, I think, is doing something similar, I think, working more closely with industry 
and getting a lot of resources from industry, which is, I think, a very good step in the right direction, because as much as external civil society actors want to be helpful, they don't have the resources of something like Microsoft. So that alignment is good, but I don't think it should be limited to Microsoft. I think engaging with all the big tech companies, as well as smaller cybersecurity companies, will be useful. But I think through secondments, um, maybe some additional internal capacity or training of internal staff. Hopefully, if they do draft a cyber policy paper, one of the things that would follow would be training on that cyber policy to the entire staff to get everyone up to that level. And then through external support, I think they will be able to take that next step and bring in the expertise because it does exist. And as part of this project over the last two years, I've gone to a lot of different threat intelligence, cybersecurity conferences and been engaging with this community. I just got back from LabsCon where you have a lot of threat intelligence uh, people, threat hunters talking about their research and what they're doing. And while they might not know a ton about the ICC, how it works, they definitely get the sense that they care about the mandate. And if there was a call for help, a lot of people would be willing and able to jump in and provide that support if and when the time comes that the prosecutor needs it. So I think there are a lot of people that care about the mandate and people who care about the mandate have the right skill set. And there is a way to do this, even if current internal capacity is a bit limited. Love to see the forms they would have to fill out to get to, through and actually consult for the ICC. But uh, let's hope that the ICC gets a little more also relaxed about doing that and, and getting the people it actually needs to do the job for them. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for explaining all of this to us and getting us up to date. Uh, we always end the podcast with our asymmetrical haircuts questions, which we don't let you prepare for. One is always really easy is what did we not ask you that we should have? Is there an element in what we're talking about that we left unhighlighted? I mean, there's a lot we could continue to talk about and getting into more details. I, I will say it's, it's going to take a lot of new engagement, I think, from the international criminal law and international justice community with this type of work in, um, in all kinds of ways. The use of digital evidence, like one thing in Ukraine is the mass amount of drones is changing the landscape of what's going to be needed. And this isn't the type of thing where you can just bring in an expert witness and put them on the stand. Like lawyers will actually need to truly understand this. And in addition to the prosecutor's office, the defense needs to be given the resources and training, as do the judges. There needs to be a whole court approach to this sophistication and not just on the prosecutor's office side. But yeah, I would just say encouraging lawyers to engage, even if it seems highly technical at first. I think the more they can be immersed in it and the more these two communities of international criminal law and cybersecurity can be engaging with each other and sort of doing the cross education, I think that will be very beneficial to the field. Another question we also like to ask is, uh, do you have a favourite court case 
Lindsay, either one that, that got you going in this field or one that you use in your teaching and training when you're talking to people or one that, uh, that you always mention over a dinner party? Yeah, what's your favorite case? I don't know. Favorite is a weird way to term that. Um, but certainly one we refer to a lot is Our Folly, which didn't actually become a case because it was just an arrest warrant. But that was a trigger for the drafting of the Berkeley Protocol on digital open source investigations and other parts of our work. So I would say it played a significant role in uh, the Alwar Folly arrest warrant was based in large part on seven videos found on social media where this Libyan commander was either directly killing or directly ordering the execution of 33 people across those seven videos. And so it was a game changer in that this type of social media evidence went from being used for lead information to being a key evidence in the case, which raised a ton of questions. And those are questions that the Berkeley Human Rights Center has been trying to answer and address uh, since then. And then finally, we always ask, is there something you're reading, watching, listening to that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, on the topic of... Uh, things that are sort of related to the work, um, because I do listen to those, but that might be fun ones or things I'd recommend. Right now, I've been listening to the audiobook of Scott Shapiro's Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. Um, and I do think that is a good one because uh, Scott Shapiro is a Yale law professor who also has a technical background and uh, sort of a philosophy background. So it's a very interesting one and comes at some of these issues with an interesting perspective. So it could be a good place for lawyers who are interested to get involved. And then in terms of podcasts, the Lazarus Heist is a good one. That one's quite engaging. So on on the topic of cyber security, but more cyber crime and just very well done. So that's a fun one. Thank you so much for these wonderful recommendations. Uh, I was looking for a podcast today and was trying to figure out what one was called. And I think I was looking for the Lazarus Heist. So I'm really happy that you reminded me. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk to you again, because I think uh, cyber crime and digital evidence is going to have such an important role in trials to come that we definitely will need more experts shining their light on it. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, listen to it all the time. So happy to come back and answer questions on digital evidence and cyber anytime. Wonderful. So just before we go, we'd like to also give a shout out to our latest patrons. So I put a list together. Yes. And we're going to start with John Anderson. Relation? Yep. He's a relation. He's my brother. Uh, we have Beth von Schaak. A uh, well-known uh, friend of the pod and uh, current U.S. war crimes ambassador. Eva Vukusic, also a friend of the pod and I think one of our most recurring guests uh, together with Molly. Uh, Lucy Gaynor, uh, and all those last three have all appeared as guests on the featured guests on the podcast. So we thank them both for uh, coming to talk to us and being on the podcast and their support. And finally, our latest patron is Zumreta Yahic. And you too can become a patron for as little as a cup of coffee per month if you go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash asymmetrical haircuts, and you can just sign up there. 
And you'll have access to our extra book club monthly podcast where we discuss with Molly Quell novels, biographies, books, and documentaries about war crimes. Or if you prefer, of course, you can just tip us a few euros or dollars or whatever currency you prefer directly. There's a tip jar on our support page. And thank you, whether you support us with time, access, new ideas, or cold hard cash, we're very happy to hear from you and have this engagement. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Same from me. Thank you so much to everyone who's uh, who gives us support in any way that they can. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.